This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing a trial about trazodone for sleep disturbances and opioid use disorder. How are you this week, Sonia? Doing fine. How are you doing, John? Another wonderful week of practicing medicine here in, in South Central Pennsylvania, so it's always a good day. It is always a good day in South Central Pennsylvania. Actually, I'm looking forward to fall. It's a little cooler. It's less hot and humid. The kids are back at school. Life is good. I think this is like, you know, I eat pretty well and I'm, I take pretty good care of myself, like from an exercise and primary care standpoint, I'll kind of practice what I preach. But this is my weakness this season, like all of the the apple cider donuts and the pumpkin spice lattes and all the stuff that I shouldn't be eating. Our favorite farm stand, I live in Adams County, Pennsylvania. Our favorite farm stand sells the apple cider donut milkshake, where they make a milkshake with homemade ice cream and they blend an apple cider donut into the milkshake. And then they top the milkshake with another donut as a garnish. And I've never had it, but my two teenage sons are both big fans. I'll have to get that place from you offline. That sounds like you hope your cath lab is running strong. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So what do you have this week for addiction medicine news? Well, it's not really news, and I hope I don't embarrass you, but I want to give you a shout out, John, because of the awesome job you did recently on a Grand Rounds at St. Max's. So everyone, John has been a huge advocate for treating hepatitis C in primary care, and he gave Grand Rounds to all of our PCPs, and it was an awesome job. It generated a lot of conversation, and I'll give credit to Dr. Scott McCracken, who also participated in this presentation And they're both helping me on a QI project we've all been doing to get PCPs to treat simple cases of hepatitis C rather than refer them out to GI. So I don't know about everybody listening, but our own GI offices are pretty overbooked. And it would be a lot easier for everyone if the PCPs could just treat basic cases of hep C. So John, have you enjoyed treating hep C in your family practice? What's been your experience with that? Yeah, it's been awesome. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think I, I said the grand rounds. I, I started doing this, uh, or the idea came to me about six or seven years ago. I had a resident that came up and precepted a case with me in clinic. And it was basically a prior authorization for a hep C treatment medication. And the resident, this wasn't kind of a shooting star resident. And I was like, wow, if he can do this, I can do this. And so that kind of led to me kind of doing some research about it. And it's much easier than I think most people think. University of Washington has a great free online course about it, but there's far more antibiotics for sinusitis than antivirals, especially in this kind of new direct acting antiviral age. Um, so it's really nice. And especially most of the patients that benefit from it really also benefit from kind of consolidation of care. They're not great at office follow-ups or getting into specialist appointments. So super rewarding. That is totally true. I've been treating patients myself now, just a few because I've just started, but people are so thrilled not to be referred to anybody. Like I say, oh, I can take care of that. And they are so happy not to have to be referred to a specialist. You know, there's no extra copay, no annoying new patient packet you have to fill out, no long wait, extra travel. So the convenience alone is definitely worth it. But there's also professional satisfaction, I feel like, in learning something new and really being able to help your patients. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Always trying to learn something new kind of makes the job what it is, right? So, John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine news? I feel like I was, I was saying before the, the, we started the podcast, I feel like we have the same three things that always kind of come up. But 
You know, one thing that just came up as of September 7th is that basically California has decriminalized magic mushrooms, so psilocybin. This really seems to have a lot of buzz around it, sort of like marijuana did maybe a decade and a half ago. So Senate Bill 58 did pass uh, narrowly, 21 to 14. And basically, it decriminalizes the possession, but not the distribution of psilocybin for people that are age 21 or older. I think the interesting part of the bill that also came into effect is that as part of this kind of decriminalization, they're actually now forcing the California Health and uh, Human Services Agency to conduct a study on the therapeutic and possible medicinal or benefits and possible harms of this product. So I think that's kind of at least nice they added that in, that um, they're not just decriminalizing it, they actually want to get some real data behind it. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for more data on therapeutic effects of psychedelics. I think the PR and the desire for them has well overtaken the proven therapeutic benefits. So I think if we do studies and the studies don't show a clear therapeutic benefit, that's not going to make much of a difference in terms of people's uh, conception of these medications or products and uh, people's desire to use them. I I remember when um, marijuana was legalized at our state, like medicinally, I remember being at a, like a ground rounds and it was basically many of the local politicians, including the, the head of the department of health for the state was present And, you know, one physician said something that kind of always kind of resonated to me that, you know, when we kind of are legalizing these or decriminalizing these for kind of medicinal purposes, we really don't do this with any other drug, right? So never do we release a drug. And this is kind of has to do with the FDA regulations of the schedule of these. But most of the time we kind of study a drug on animals, then we have small groups of people, then we do kind of a phase four trial, then we release it to the general public. It only seems with these kind of medicinal drugs that we kind of do the opposite, where we kind of release it to the general public, and then we backtrack and start doing true clinical research. And so, you know, it's going to be many years before we have like really good data on that. Well, and we might never have good data on it. So what are we going to do then? Like recriminalize it? I think decriminalizing it and legalizing it are two different things. But I think, you know, the writing on the wall is once you start kind of down this path, there's a possibility that's where it's going to end like it has in other states already. Well, sure. And plenty of things that aren't medicinal, but still make you feel good are legal. Even things that are quite toxic and bad for you, like alcohol, tobacco, soda, Turkey Hill iced tea. You know, those are all legal. (laughs) Why you laugh? (laughs) Leave Turkey Hill alone. They're a good product. (laughs) Turkey Hill iced tea is like my nemesis. Well, it's not really my nemesis. My my real nemesis is probably Mountain Dew, but Turkey Hill iced tea is kind of up there. We got a lawsuit from Turkey Hill and from Mountain <laughs> Dew in this episode. Oh, all right. Well, you ready to talk about this article? <laughs> sure. Last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. So tell us about this article today. I think it's a really relevant topic to something that we see all the time in, in primary care and addiction medicine. Yeah, I'm excited to present this. This is a shockingly, I would say, normal article. Not that our other research isn't normal, but addiction research, like we've said before, is kind of all over the map. You know, it's hard to keep hold of your research subjects. Half of them disappear. Nothing is randomized. It's all these prospective cohort studies. So this is a very kind of normal study, the same way I feel like you would find in a cardiology journal or in any other medical specialty. So this article is called Trazodone for Sleep Disturbance in Opioid-Dependent Patients Maintained on Buprenorphine, a Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial. It was published in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence recently, just this year. So 
little bit of background. Sleep disturbance is very common among people with opioid use disorder, both with and without buprenorphine treatment. Whether or not they're in treatment, sleep disorder is very common. And sleep quality has been noted to be an important predictor of relapse. So people who aren't sleeping well have higher rates of relapse. There's a lot of medication for insomnia, but a lot of it also has abuse potential. And patients avoid it if they have opioid use disorder. Trazodone is a medication. It's widely used for insomnia in patients with opioid use disorder. So it's already the drug that we tend to turn to. But it hasn't really been studied in this population. There's only one other randomized trial in this population, and that was on patients on methadone. So we have no randomized clinical trials of trazodone on patients on buprenorphine. So for those of you who don't know, I'll just mention trazodone is a medication that was originally used as an antidepressant. We actually don't understand its exact mechanism of action, but it's one of those kind of broad drugs that affects a lot of different receptors in the brain. Probably it works through serotonin, histamine, and alpha-1 receptors, antagonist for all those receptors. So a serotonin antagonist, maybe an antihistamine, and maybe uh, an alpha-1 antagonist, and maybe some other things. It seems to do a lot of different things in the brain. Before we go any deeper into the article, John, what's been your perception of sleep quality and sleep problems in your patients with opioid use disorder? It is a common issue. I think that, you know, it's not an uncommon thing that we talk about. Sometimes it can be kind of more of a, a psychogenic insomnia kind of related to a either a bipolar disorder that's a concurrent uh, dual diagnosis. Um, although other people have told me they think it's related to their medication. I think that that's been a hot topic before about kind of sleep-related issues with buprenorphine in particular. And then a lot of people just have these very erratic lives that they work kind of swing shifts or they work these third shifts and they're kind of like going to sleep when the rest of us are waking up. And I think it's just hard. Um, so it's it really kind of insomnia comes up in many different flavors in people with this condition. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, opioids themselves, including buprenorphine, can affect your sleep. But I've been amazed at how many patients tell me that they have insomnia, even going back to childhood, long before they started using any illicit drugs, that they were insomniacs as kids. So I wonder if something about the tendency to develop opioid use disorder and the tendency to have poor sleep track together. So let's talk about the clinical question. The objective of this study was to assess the effect of trazodone on sleep disturbance among patients with opioid use disorder who were on buprenorphine, and they compared it to placebo. So who was in this study? It was all men. They were adults age 18 to 60, and they all had to have disturbed sleep. So they got a score of greater than five on something called the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which I'll talk about in a sec. So they had disturbed sleep. They were on buprenorphine or buprenorphine naloxone combination, and they had to be stable on that medication for at least three months and at least one month on a consistent dose. So they wanted to avoid sort of nuance at sleep disturbance related to opioid withdrawal or adjustment of opioid medications. And the authors noted the study was done only in men, not because they particularly wanted to study just that one gender, but that the treatment facility where the study was done had very few women in it. It was culturally where the study took place. Uh, very few women were attracted to the kind of treatment that was done at this treatment facility. So where was this study done? It was done in New Delhi, and they were in an outpatient treatment facility. The mean age was about 33. 57% were married. 85% had a high school education, 76% held semi-skilled jobs, and the mean global 
sleep score, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index was 10.8, indicating really bad sleep. But so this is a male, pretty good educated, well-employed, married population. So pretty stable and all stable on buprenorphine. They were long-term opioid users. The mean age of initiation of opioid use in this population was about 20. And the mean duration of use prior to entry into the study was 13 years of opiate use. The mean use of buprenorphine was about three years prior to the study. Only 28% had ejected in their lifetime. And relevant to this study, 100% all of the men in this study reported past 90-day alcohol and tobacco use, and 93% reported cannabis use within the past 90 days. So they're all smoking, they're all drinking alcohol, they're almost all using cannabis. And this was done starting in 2019, this study. There are some exclusion criteria as well. This was a pretty narrow focus population. So they excluded people with other psychiatric diagnoses, other medical diagnoses, like even like hypertension, any psychoactive substance or prescription use other than the THC, nicotine, and alcohol I spoke about. They also uh, excluded people who had diagnoses of alcohol or THC use disorder. So really, they excluded people who had any other disease or condition that would affect their sleep. So they really wanted people who had insomnia that didn't have a secondary cause other than, you know, potentially maybe opioid use disorder. So that's who was in the study. What did they do? The intervention was they received trazodone between 50 and 150 milligrams at night. Uh, the mean study dose was 101. So, you know, about 100 milligrams, which is kind of our middle dose of trazodone. And the participants were allowed to titrate themselves between 50 and 150 milligrams at will. They also were given a brochure on sleep hygiene. And the comparison was an identical protocol using medication placebo. The outcome was a bunch of sleep questionnaires. So they did the Epworth sleepiness scale, a brief pain inventory, clinical opioid withdrawal scale, depression, anxiety, and stress scale, um, an opioid craving scales, this Sleep 50 questionnaire. So lots of questionnaires, but the big one was this Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And they assessed it at baseline and then at six weeks. And so just to talk a tiny bit about this scale, the PSQI, Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, is the most important scale in this study. And this was the primary outcome. It's about a four-page questionnaire. You fill it out with pencil and paper. And it's about your sleep quality, subjective measure of sleep quality. How do you feel about your sleep? It's well-validated. It's been in use for research purposes for over 30 years. You can get a score from 0 to 21, and the higher score indicates worse sleep. So someone with a score of 10, 15, 20 has really bad sleep. And the cutoff for a good sleeper versus a bad sleeper is 5. So up to 5, you're probably a good sleeper. 6 and above, you're probably a poor sleeper. And that's both sensitive and specific for poor sleep. So that's what the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index is. So John, what did you think of the clinical question? I think it's pretty valid. I think my biggest kind of surprise when I look at this is they were able to get a population excluding like any other psychiatric diagnosis on this group. I think that that really, not to be like biased, but that, that really kind of limits the field quite a bit from my perspective, at least. Well, right. I mean, how many of our patients have zero other diagnoses or medical conditions that might impair sleep, including hypertension. Like how can you even smoke and drink and not have hypertension? Yeah. So like, I appreciate the question. I love the idea and I love kind of like the outcomes they're looking at. I do feel like just looking at kind of, we're not there yet, but application of this, this is a relatively narrow population. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about the validity. So first some strengths, this was a randomized, double-blinded placebo controlled trial. 
it was pretty good size. It had 100 patients, nice round number. Um, the two groups, the placebo and the trazodone group, were the same at baseline. There were no differences except for one of the scores, a score called the ASSIST score. But otherwise, they were basically the same at baseline. Both groups received equal interventions other than the study medication versus placebo. I thought six weeks was long enough to see a difference. You know, with most sleeping pills, it's not like you have to wait two weeks, four weeks, six weeks for the pill to kind of kick in. It either works or it doesn't pretty quickly. They had good follow-up. Very few people dropped out. They did do an intention-to-treat analysis, and they analyzed the patients in the groups to which they were originally randomized, which is appropriate. They also looked at adverse events, which I really appreciated, of trazodone, and I'll talk about that when we get to the results. I thought the outcome was good, you know, basically improved sleep. They used a validated score, and... I didn't think funding would cause any bias. It was funded by an Indian governmental health organization, the National Drug Dependence Treatment Center. So a lot of strengths, especially in study design, some weaknesses. Like all studies of sleep meds, the duration was relatively short. So they only used the medication for six weeks, although most patients report insomnia is a long-term problem. It's not a short-term problem. Population, like you said, was pretty limited. So only men and only men with no other comorbidities that might affect their sleep. And the other limitation is that they didn't do any objective sleep measures. There was no sleep tracking watches, no, just nothing to objectively measure the actual duration of sleep or the sleep quality other than patient self-report. But in the end, if people feel they slept better, like what more do you want, you know? So did you think the trial was valid? Yeah, I think so. I think it seems like it really kind of had a lot of positive strengths there. Like I love the fact we're covering, like you said, not to kind of diss on other things, but a quote, like kind of relatively classic trial, right? It's a randomized, double-blind, controlled trial, decent patient size. They really kind of adjudicated for the most part kind of baseline characteristics. This isn't one of these kind of large, which um, somewhat messy population-based studies of, of insurance databases that we often cover. So I think that was really cool. All right. So let's talk about the results. You know, bottom line, trazodone was well-tolerated. And it was effective in improving sleep disturbance in these people, individuals with opioid use disorder, maintain buprenorphine over the six-week period. So it totally worked. It helped with most indices of sleep quality. And if your cutoff for good sleep was taking your PSQI, your Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, from less than five to greater than five, the number needed to treat was about 1.5. So it worked for a lot of people, you know, you didn't even have to, it worked for more than half of the people in this study, basically. And there was no difference in other things that trazodone might affect. No difference in depression scores, anxiety scores, pain scores, opioid craving scores, withdrawal score. So it's not like trazodone made you less depressed. And then because you were less depressed, you slept better. It had no effect on anything else. It really just improves sleep. So at baseline, people who the average kind of PSQI score of both groups was around 11. In the trazodone group, 82% got to a PSQI score of less than or equal to 5. In the placebo group, 17% got to a PSQI score of less than 5. So there was just a huge difference between the two groups, 82% in the trazodone group and 17.6% in the placebo group achieved good sleep. And this difference was seen in all different measures of sleep quality. So sleep latency, sleep duration, sleep efficiency, sleep disturbance, daytime sleepiness and daytime dysfunction. All of these measures, there was a significant improvement with trazodone as compared to placebo. 
So it really worked. It worked really well. They also studied some of the adverse effects of trazodone. And I really like that. I think I've said this before, but I'm always looking for data that I can get out of a trial that's not just the primary result. And so I definitely learned a lot about the trazodone side effects. So the adverse effects from most common to least common were dry mouth, headache, drowsiness in the morning, and then itching and dizziness on standing. Um, And those were different between trazodone and placebo, except for itching, which was the same in both groups. And only three people stopped the trazodone due to it not helping, whereas nine people stopped the placebo because it didn't help. And only one person stopped the trazodone due to side effects. So even though there were a lot of side effects, you know, 41.2% had dry mouth and 21.6% had headache, people didn't stop because of them. So what did you think of the results, John? Was it as effective as you thought it would be? More effective, less effective? I mean, I think it kind of tracks with what I see clinically, just to kind of like throw that out there. This probably is my go-to oftentimes because it's a non-habit forming medication with kind of fewer drug interactions than some of the more potent uh, sedative hypnotics. I'll be honest with you. Most people tell me if they complain of anything that it doesn't work, it's not strong enough. I have not heard anyone ever complain about headache or dry mouth with this. I was surprised about that. Morning drowsiness all the time. Right. Leaves people groggy. I hear about the dry mouth, but When I tell people it might cause dry mouth, a lot of them say they already have dry mouth, likely due to some of the other medications they take. So people aren't too concerned about it. You know, that's a fair point. Like I said earlier, maybe because this group was narrowed to such a group that wasn't on any medications, no other medical comorbidities, maybe it was more pronounced. So are these results going to help me in patient care? I think so. So these patients were not necessarily very similar to mine. They're all relatively young Indian men in stable recovery with buprenorphine. My patients are more diverse. And pretty much, like you said, all of them have some associated comorbidities. I have very few who have bad sleep and no other problems except for opioid use disorder. Also, my patients don't really use tobacco and alcohol at such high rates. So I don't know how that affected the results. But I mean, more patients in my opioid use disorder clinics use tobacco probably than my general population, but they probably use less alcohol, actually. A lot of them are pretty hesitant to use alcohol, especially with buprenorphine. So this group is different from my patients in my clinic, but I can prescribe trazodone in my setting. It's feasible, it's available, it's affordable. The outcomes were good. They used a great validated sleep score. And if you look at the benefits versus the harms, the patients in this study really felt the benefits outweigh the harm as evidenced by the very low dropout rate and the fact that people continued the medicine even though they had the side effects. So the benefit was improved sleep and the harm was dry mouth or headache or drowsiness and the number needed to treat again was about 1.5. So with this data on hand, I really do think I could continue to recommend trazodone confidently as an option for insomnia for patients on buprenorphine. And I can tell patients it's pretty likely to improve their sleep but it also likely might have some mild side effects, but nothing too serious. There are side effects that will stop if you discontinue the medication. And yeah, I think I could confidently recommend it. However, in people who have other causes of insomnia, which is basically everybody, my conclusion might be less certain. I'm not going to be quite as enthusiastic about it. Like you said, if someone has severe depression, anxiety, if they're on multiple other psychotropic medications, if they have cardiac disease, so it's hard for them to breathe when they lie down, if they have sleep apnea. A lot of my patients have a lot of nighttime pain, orthopedic pain. I don't know if trazodone is going to fix their problems quite as well as it did in this study. Fair enough. Well, thank you for presenting that article, Sonia. 
it was fun. It was fun to read a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind uh, study. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or the authors of the articles that we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.